0: Thanks. Yeah, I'm good. Good evening, everybody. I am so glad you came back. I don't know what I'd do with an empty room. I'd probably just have fun with myself. Um, Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to break up the first chunk of our time and really do a diagnosis on parenting today, what we're seeing across the country, good things, bad things. But then the final uh, section of time, we're really going to look at, um, here's some ideas. Here's some ideas on how to parent well in the 21st century. I'm going to do my best to apply it to moms and dads, grandparents, uh, aunts and uncles, coaches, teachers. I know we have some educators in the room. How many educators are in the room tonight? Can I see your hands? Great. I think we ought to give you guys a hand. Could we do that real quick? Yeah. Thank you for doing what you do. I know you don't do it to get rich, but um, thank you for doing it. Okay. So this morning, if you were here, you know, I kind of started, I didn't kind of, I started with a pop quiz. I think we need to do that that again. You you excited about that? Okay. So you all know that a kid growing up in the 21st century, uh, their native tongue is social media. You understand social media is big. So what I'm going to do on the screens behind me is I'm going to put up, actually I'm going to do it right now, 15 logos of social media apps that are on your phone, if you care to have them on your phone. And I'm gonna give you one minute to decipher these 15 logos, these icons, okay? If you need to get help from the person next to you, do it. But I'm gonna give you one minute, so get on your mark, get set, go. Should be some audio. They're saying they're sorry up there. Okay, there we go. All right, do we start again? I'm going to give you extra time, ladies and gentlemen. All right, take two on the game. Oh, they need me to hold a second because there's background music. You all can guess better if there's background music, right? Okay. I feel like I need to do a few jokes now. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Okay, I think we got it. All right, get on your marks. Okay, go for it. Your time is up. Okay, sorry. Uh, you actually had a minute and a half, you know. You do know that, okay? All right, so we're going to go through these one by one. We'll go left to right from top to bottom, okay? And we'll do what we did this morning. If you know the right answer, just yell it out. So the top left is kind of a gimme. What is that? Facebook. Facebook. Okay, how about the next one? Instagram. Instagram. Next one? Spotify. Spotify, good. Next one? Paris. We got a hit worship leader right here, I'm telling you right now your wife told you okay all right next one all right middle left twitter how about the next one red solo cup <laughs> yeah in church that's what we call it right okay it's actually house party and if you're a mom or dad you need to know that one okay all right next one Reddit. good reddit next one good next one whatsapp how about the bottom left google plus next YouTube next, good. Next, good. And good. You guys, that was excellent. Give yourselves a hand. There you go. All right, good. Okay. Anybody get all of them right? You guys sounded like you got all of them right. Did you get all of them right? Oh, oh yeah. You said red solo cup. Yeah. Okay. You got a ninety. That's still an A. Okay. That's good. Okay, well, um, we're talking tonight about a subject that may sound very derogatory, avoiding mistakes. But um, I have noticed, as I have done my work with students... By the way, I don't claim to be a parenting expert. I don't stand in front of you as some sort of guru or sage on parenting. I am a parent. My wife and I have raised two kids, two adult kids. And I have the undeserved privilege of being in front of tens of thousands of kids every year in schools across the country. Public schools, private schools. And I'm seeing patterns... And I see a new report card for parents. I don't know if you see this, if you're an educator too. It seems like we just feel like we've got to be intrusive and, and uh, barge in and pave the way for our kids. The helicopter parent has become the lawnmower parent. I think it's now the Apache helicopter is what we're seeing right now. So um, anyway, so we're talking about avoiding the most common mistakes uh, that parents make. Um, let me begin with a story that I think will set up where we want to go tonight. The year was 1921. When a surgeon by the name of Dr. Evan Kane first proposed the idea that a doctor could perform a surgery on a patient using only local anesthesia. In other words, up to that point, they'd always knock the patient out, even for minor surgery, and then, you know, hope to God he wakes up and send him home. So he uh, took the idea to his hospital board, and the board came back with this response. They said, well, Dr. Kane, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is we're going to let you try this little experiment. The bad news is, you're going to have to find your own patient. So Dr. Kane said, I agree. So he scoured the land to try to find a willing patient time, date, and place to perform this historical operation. When he walked into the operating room with his gloves and his mask on, the room was literally filled with other medical professionals waiting to watch this historical surgery take place. Dr. Kane very meticulously cut into the abdomen of the patient. He performed an appendectomy that day sewed so the patient back up with such precision that he got a standing ovation from everybody in the room. It was a smashing success. The year, as I mentioned, was 1921. The surgeon, as I mentioned, was Dr. Evan Kane. But I deliberately neglected to tell you that the patient that day was also Dr. Evan Kane. He performed <laughs> surgery on himself. Does that gross you out right before dinner? Now. I don't tell you that to gross you out. I tell you that because of this. I believe that as a parent or a leader in general for that matter, if anything's going to change in me, I'm going to have to climb up on the operating table. I'm going to need to let God do the surgery, but I'm going to do, I'm gonna have to cooperate and do it, do, it, do it with him myself. In other words, nobody can do it for me. Would you agree? I need to say, hand me the scalpel, hand me the scissors. So tonight, in one way, I'm going to hand you the scissors and the scalpel, but I'd like you to do a little bit of operation, a little bit of surgery on your own, parenting on your own leadership how secure are we are we secure enough that if we can go a week if our kids don't like us that week because we did something tough i'm just asking you know this can't be a popularity contest so many times i see parents want to be a pal rather than a parent have you met these people they want to be a bff instead of i need to be your leader right now and you're going to love me when you're 30 you know what i'm talking about So having said that, I'm kind of just laying the groundwork. Let's jump into this thing. By the way, one of the reasons I'm so, so into this is there was a parenting survey done a a few years ago. Tens of thousands of parents across the country. And when asked the question, the average parent in America gave themselves an average grade of an A or B. They gave their neighbor a D. Is that not hilarious? And that us, you know? Well, they don't know what a hard day I had. Of course I had to yell at my son, but boy, that Josh next door, he needs some help, you know. So um, anyway, uh, I just, I'm just saying I'm not saying. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take um, some categories of mistakes. I thought in the first half of our night we could look at some major categories that we tend to make mistakes in the 21st century. Now, when I did the book, 12 Huge Mistakes Parents Can Avoid, I literally did these 12. I'm not going to go through all 12 of these, but these were the 12 mistakes that I saw most commonly made from New York to California. And most of them are well-intentioned mistakes. Like, for instance, when we don't let our kids fail, it's because we don't want them to fail. What parent wants their kid to fail? Nobody. But would you not agree? Sometimes failure is the best teacher. Would anybody agree with that statement in here? So on the one hand, we want to save them from every negative experience, but on the other hand, some of our best learning happened when we skin our knee or we failed something or or whatever. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to take these 12 mistakes and give you three categories that all 12 fit under. Does that make sense? If we did all 12, we'd be here till midnight, and I don't think you want to do that. So I'm going to do three major categories. So if you'll fasten your seatbelts, let's jump right in, okay? So category number one is we tend to risk too little. Now, no parent at any day, if they're good, wants to take un- a reckless risk. But we're in a day where we absolutely are so afraid of risks that we tend to not let our kids do some of the typical things that we would have done 30 or 40 years ago. Would anybody agree with that? When I, my wife and I talk about our growing up years, I was outside, mom had no idea where I was. She'd ring a bell or yell, and we'd come in when it was dark or whatever. And, and now today it's like, oh my, OMG, hashtag scary, you know? So um, what I'd like to do is I'd like to just uh, illustrate. We lace our messaging all through life with messages about how scary life is. In fact, we're consumed with safety, danger, toxic, do not touch, flammable, hazard, do not walk, slippery when wet. Everywhere we go, there's this fear. In fact, we saw it about 20 years ago, vividly illustrated on the playgrounds of America. Do some of you remember about 20-some years ago, the playgrounds of America began to change. We were ripping the monkey bars and the jungle gyms off the playground. Some of you remember this? Immediately, psychologists began to write journals and papers saying, wait, mom, dad, please don't do that. Because the same motor skills that a kid will use to navigate the monkey bars at seven or eight are the same motor skills they're going to use in their 20s when they move out of the house when they get that big job interview, when they ask someone to marry them. But alas, we were determined 20 years ago to take those things off the playground. Well, it's interesting. The kids who 20 years ago were 6 and 7 and 8 are now 26, 27, 28. Did you know that counselors, therapists in America, Europe, and Australia are all writing the same thing? They're saying we are seeing a disproportionate amount of young adults who are having phobias about normal risk-taking ventures like the ones I just gave you. Now, certainly life is scary. Being an adult today, in fact, it's a verb now. You know that, don't you? My kids say I'm adulting, you know, because it's, it's a process of becoming a grown-up. I'm just saying, have we messaged this so much that we've made our kids afraid to take a risk? We measure data, we, we measure kids, and the kids that are growing up today, which I totally believe in, I love Generation Z, are the most risk-averse bunch of kids we've ever measured. I started teaching kids in 1979. It's my 40th year most risk averse and i'm not saying we need to be reckless but folks wasn't our nation built on risk america was an experiment in 1776 and we said let's give it a shot we had no guarantee in fact it was really (laughs) it was the odds were against us but we did it it was a group of entrepreneurs men and women that sewed flags and fought wars and did stuff that you just have to do and that spirit has prevailed until until today when we're so afraid for our kiddos and it's a natural fear i'm just saying i wonder if the message has gone awry and maybe we need to let our kids maybe skin their knee mama so if you're taking notes that's s-k-i-n-t-a okay you get my point so let me um, let me illustrate there's a school over in new zealand that's a brilliant case study and i want to just give you a picture of what i'm talking about so Principal Bruce McClacken is uh, the principal of Swanson Primary School, and there's a university right across the street that started noticing how absolutely risk-averse this school was. They had taken all the dangerous playground equipment off the playground, and by the way, dangerous would be a swinging tire, maybe a skateboard, all that's dangerous, get thee behind me, okay? And then they had, oh my gosh, a one to three ratio with teacher-students. So it one teacher for every three students. They were just making sure there was gonna be no litigation You know, against the school. Well, the university, visitors from the university, uh, Professor Grant Schofield and his students, came over and said, We'd like to try a little experiment. We'll gather the data, but we'd like to challenge you this next semester to put the dangerous playground equipment back on the playground and then reduce the adult student ratio. Well, that scared them a little bit until they explained. They said, Just try it for one semester we believe our hypothesis is it's going to go very very well so instead of having like 25 teachers out there they had maybe seven at the at the playground and they put all the allegedly dangerous playground equipment back out there well if i can just give you the long story short the first day first day they said was pretty chaotic because the kids go oh my gosh there's no adults out here you know but they said by day two the kids really began to look out for each other You see, the grown-ups, the teachers, and the the principals had said, now kids, there's going to be fewer of us adults out here, so you're going to have to really own this playground. You have to be responsible for each other. In fact, fifth graders, I need you to look out for the third graders. And they really began to do it. In fact, what they were noticing was the kids were bullying dropped because the kids were taking care of each other. Student engagement actually picked up in the classroom because they actually got their Wheaties out in the playground. By the way, can I just say something to you? Boys need playgrounds. Maybe girls do too, but we need to go do something that's not sitting in a desk for seven, seven hours. So all the good things that I believe God intended for us happened again, and so they were fully ready to engage in the classroom. This does this not make sense? So let me tell you what Professor Grant Schofield said following the experiment. This is so good. He said, too many rules can have an adverse effect on children. The great paradox of sheltering is that it's more dangerous in the long run. Society's obsession with protecting kids ignores the benefits of risk-taking. Keep reading. Children develop the frontal lobe of their brain when taking risks, meaning they work through the consequences. You can't teach them that. They have to learn risk on their own terms. It doesn't develop by watching TV. They have to take a risk. So moms, dads, grandparents in the room, I think I'm preaching to the choir, but listen to me. We've got to let kids do kids stuff, and maybe they do get hurt. Not harm, but hurt. This is how we learn. This is how we grow. I'm not advocating reckless, please hear me. I'm just saying, let's let them do the risk-taking stuff that they naturally wanna do, particularly during adolescence. By the way, you know the, can I just say this? The brain develops from back to front. The prefrontal lobe is the last part to, 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 to develop. And the only way you go through adolescence where you mature well is if you take risks. You can't watch a video on risk-taking and take notes. It doesn't work. You've got to try things. This is why adolescent boys do a bunch of stupid things. Isn't that true? You always say, oh, adolescent, that's sophomore in high school did a stupid thing. Because we're, we feel this God-given urge to spread our wings and try things. And yeah, we do dumb things. Guys in the room, did you not do at least one dumb thing when you're a teenager? Am I right about this? Okay, thank you very much. I'm not alone. But this is how we grow up to be men. So, having said that, Um, oh you got to see this this is so funny I wrote I wrote uh, I got an email from a grandparent that said my my daughter who has three kids is so obsessed with safety she had me babysit my my own grandkids her daughters her daughters and sons and she called me three times before 10 o'clock and she finally said are they safe he goes yes we're having breakfast and we're safe you know it's (laughs) it's all going to be just fine I love that I love that it's so funny um, by the way, I brought up I'm gonna to go to that I'm gonna get done with this one and move on to the next one but Have you ever seen a picture of monkey bars a hundred years ago? Can I show one to you? They were three stories high These kids are playing out and no wonder we won. We won World War one. We had already been on a playground man the Guys followed from the. I mean, it's awesome. I love this. This is so great but my point is simply this over time over time By the way, mamas loved their kids back then. They had 12 of them, but they loved their kids, okay, right? Now we got one or two, and let's let's wrap them in bubble wrap. Come on, do we not do this? So all I'm saying is, if we want fully mature disciples of Jesus at 18, 21, 25 years old, let's guide them and proportionally give them opportunities to take risks that help them grow up well. When we don't, we create something I call artificial maturity. I did a book on this in 2012. Here's what artificial maturity is. Kids today are overexposed to information far earlier than they're ready. Would you agree with that? 90% of preschool kids are online. At the same time, kids are underexposed to real life firsthand experiences far later than they're ready. For instance, when I was 16, I was working a job. I and all my friends were working a job. It's the only way you had any money. The average high schooler in America does not work a job. They got soccer practice, karate, violin lessons. Duh, duh. Oh, they're busy, but we're not doing real stuff. We're doing facsimiles. Nothing wrong with facsimiles. I'm just saying, when you get a lot of information, but you've not tried it yet, you're artificially mature. Does this church not want real, genuinely, authentically mature kids growing up here? Absolutely. Okay, so I'm going to kind of bottom line this for you. What happened to my screen? We pause now for station identification. Okay, here we go. I'm sure it's going to come back. I'm I'm sure it's going to come back. (laughs) You got the right slide. Okay. Quickly listen. Quickly. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I I know the clock's still ticking. Let me give you our takeaway real quick, and hopefully the slide will pop up eventually. Um, Number one, the more we prevent, the less we tend to prepare. In other words, if we're obsessed in preventing any bad thing from happening, we're probably not going to do a good job preparing. By the way, let me say what I say in all the states I go to. We, in this generation of children, as parents, have done a much better job protecting than preparing. Amen? Amen? Nothing wrong with protecting. I'm just saying, let's be thinking, are we preparing them? In fact, are my decisions preparing them for adulthood? My wife and I would say to each other as our kids were growing up, we're not just raising children, we're raising future adults. We're not just raising children, we're raising future adults. And far too often, we prepare the path for the child instead of the child for the path. All right, let's do number two. That's number one. The more we prevent, the less we prepare. The more resources we give our kids, the less resourceful they tend to become. Now, I'm not against resourcing kids. We want to resource our kids for education, for spiritual growth. But just know, if we throw all kinds of resources at our kids, they don't need to be resourceful. Mom's going to get it for me. You with me? So let's be very calculated. I love, let me tell you a quick story. I love my friend David. He and I both have sons the same age. His son's name is Nick. When Nick was 13 years old, this was quite a few years ago, the latest iPod had just come out. Remember iPods? That's history, I'd realized. But okay, so the latest iPod. And so they were in the Apple store, and this iPod is right there. There's one more left. And Nick said to his dad, Dad, I want to get this iPod. There's only one left. Can we get it today? And David, the dad, said, well, how much money you got? I don't have any, Dad. I've got nothing, you know? And so David made a very wise and quick decision in that Apple store that I think was, was perfect. Here's what he did. He said, Nick, since you don't have any money and I do, I'm gonna buy that iPad for me. It's gonna be mine. And I'm gonna put high up in my closet, but you can pay monthly installments. And as soon as you pay, so I'm gonna secure it for you. Nobody else is gonna get it, you're gonna get it. But you're gonna pay it off in in however many months it has. And when you're done paying it off, you get the iPod. David said, I never saw a kid so grateful for a a toy, (laughs) for an iPod, than when he had paid it off himself So notice what David did. He secured it as a good dad, but he had his son really earn what he was getting. Makes sense to me. Okay, number three, as we obsessively protect kids, they often accrue fears about those dangers. And by the way, we see this all over the country. Number four, when we refuse to let kids risk, they fail to become risk takers. And then finally, number five, as adults control environments, we create dependent kids who remain kids. All right, so mistake number one, we risk too little, okay? Let's do mistake number two. Mistake number two is we rescue too quickly. So you know how this looks. Mama's in the room. You know exactly how this looks. In elementary school, it's a rushing that permission slip down that our child forgot because God knows we don't want them to run laps around the gym or something like that, you know. So we rush the permission or the gym shorts or the project or whatever. And I'm not saying that's a wicked sin by doing that. I'm just saying when are they going to learn not to forget? You do that and they're going to keep forgetting. That makes sense to me. I kept forgetting until mom did not rush it down and I never forgot again. I'm just saying. I'm not saying. Okay? So, um, so rescuing by middle school, oh my gosh. By middle school, it's all kinds of negotiating with teachers because that poor grade could have been higher. I got to tell you something. I got an email from the University of Syracuse. I got to tell you this story. Freshman teacher, a teacher who teaches freshman students, she said, Tim, I knew you would enjoy this story. She said, I uh, just handed back the first set of tests to our first-year students, and one of the young ladies in the class got a C-. minus. Well, she had never, ever gotten a C- minus in her life up to that point. So she had a meltdown right there in class. Oh, Meltdown. Everybody looks at this poor girl over there. She's having her meltdown. The first thing this young lady thinks to do is reach in her backpack, pulls out her cell phone, and she texts her mom right there in class. Mom texts back and says, call me right away. So right there in class, she called mom. Well, cell phone conversations are kind of loud, so you know, everything else stops as the phone conversation phone is going on. And the young lady goes, okay, mom, she wants to talk to you. Hands the phone to the professor so mom can negotiate a B-minus out of the C-minus. I wish I could tell you that was an isolated incident. happens hundreds of thousands of times every year in America. I just got a note from a school principal, high school principal, that said a mom had just called and she said, uh, I want my daughter taken out of her current science class because her former boyfriend's in that class and I don't want her distracted by her former boyfriend, put her in another class. I'm going, the best way for her to grow up is to be there in that same class. I'm not cruel, folks. I'm not. I'm just saying, my mom and dad would have never taken me out of class for a situation where a breakup had happened. This is my best chance to say, I'm going to. I'm going to get tough here. Am I preaching to the choir or to the enemy? Okay, all right. So let's talk about this real quick. Um, I'm going to tell you about Singapore math. If you're an educator, educator in the room, you know this term. Singapore math was an experiment based on a visit that we made to Singapore. American educators went over to Singapore years ago because these Singapore kids seemed to be somewhat smarter than our American kids. They were doing better in math every single year, year after year after year. When we got over there, our American educators noticed what they had done in Singapore was in the midst of the math curriculum, in the midst of all the math equations, they'd mixed in soft skills with the hard skills. So they didn't just talk about numbers, they talked about resilience, good attitudes, and perseverance. Sounds like something a boss might want one day, don't you think? So in the midst of all the equations, perseverance, resilience, positive attitudes. And while our American educators watched these Singapore teachers gave these elementary school children a math problem that was two grades higher than they would would be able to do. And they said, kiddos, you can work as long as you want to try to get this right. Go. Do you know how long the average Singapore child worked on the math problem? The average was an hour before they either gave up and said, I can't do this, or some of them got it right. So our American educators flew back home and said, we're going to try that experiment in America. And they, dupli- they duplicated it exactly. Do you know how long our American students lasted on the math problem? 37 seconds, on average, before we went, this is too hard. Why don't you give us hard problems? Now, I'm not faulting our kids. I'm faulting us. They are products of our making. And yes, we live in a high-tech world where everything's quick and, and it's a quick click. But I'm just saying, we've got to build these soft skills in with the hard skills. And when I say Saskas, you know what I mean, don't you? Attitude. Stick with it. Resilience. All the stuff my mom and dad tried to build into me. And by the way, by the moment I went off to college, I knew they loved me and it wasn't about me. They had built that into me. We've got to do it again. These kids are worth it. These kids are worth it. These kids are worth it. Okay, so Harry Estroff Morano, we have lost our slide again. Is anybody up there? Okay, there we go. Uh, This is the um, editor for Psychology Today. Read with me what she says. Research demonstrates that children who are protected from grappling with difficult tasks don't develop what psychologists call mastery experiences. Kids who have this well-earned sense of mastery, I'll read my notes, kids who have this, it's back, is it back? Kids who have this well-earned sense of mastery are more optimistic and decisive. They've learned they are capable of overcoming adversity and achieving goals. Kids who have never tested their abilities grow into emotionally brittle young adults who are more vulnerable to anxiety and depression. Did you know the mental health crisis has become a crisis? One out of three adolescents is having some anxiety and depression level problem in their life. It sh- it's not supposed to be this way. I think we got, like I said this morning, we got ambushed. We didn't know this was going to happen. So how do we lead them through this? By the way, one of the many schools we work with is a a boys' Catholic school in Little Rock, Arkansas. Because they had so many parents wanting to rescue their children from any, you know, forgotten whatever, they put a sign up in the lobby of the school, I want to show you this sign. I really, really want to show you this sign. (laughs) Can you help me, boys, please? This is awesome. All right, here it is. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. If you're dropping off your son's forgotten lunch, books, homework, equipment, etc., please turn around and exit the building. Your are or to problem solve in your absence. <laughs> Once again, I'm just saying, I'm not saying. Okay. And by the way, I know there's some kids in the room. Kids, can I say, I'm saying this because I love you. I know you're capable of more than sometimes we think you are. You're ready to grow up and we're just holding you back because of our alleged fear about maybe you're not ready. I think you're ready. Okay, let's, let's real quick do number three. The third mistake, oh, I'm sorry, take away real quick. When we rescue, when we rescue, number one, students learn total dependency on us. You do know that, don't you? We keep rescuing and they go, I'm loving this. This is awesome. But you know what we found in our college focus groups? Many college students have a love-hate relationship with their mom and dad. They love the fact that mom is stepping in all the time, but they hate the fact that she didn't really believe in me, I guess. Because she does it. She's Superman. I'm Lois Lane. Or Jimmy Olsen. Number two, it fails to teach them the consequences of poor choices. Number three, we stunt resilience and resourcefulness, which I believe are the two competencies in the 21st. If you could be resourceful, meaning i got to dig up some answers, I learned to Google, right? And I'm resilient. I can bounce back when I have to. Those are huge. Number three, it creates teens with high arrogance, low self-esteem. By the way, this is a psychological diagnosis now. High arrogance, low self-esteem. If I've watched videos, I think I know what I'm talking about, but I've never actually done it. So my self-esteem cannot be built only by watching video. You believe this, don't you? Can I get gut-level honest? I believe, as a Christ follower, my identity needs to be built in Christ. I really believe that. That my identity is through my Creator. But the only way I actually embrace that great identity is by getting up off my bottom and doing something. Be doers of the word, not merely hearers only. Am I right about this? It's easy to do a Bible study. Everything's wonderful. With the donuts and scripture, it's wonderful. What I need is, pardon me, get up off my butt and do something with what I know. That's when I feel good about myself. That, ladies and gentlemen, is when the boy starts feeling like a man because I actually did something. And I'm telling you, we, we gotta make sure that our fear doesn't stop that. Okay, one more. Number five, it breeds codependent teens who are ready, unready for autonomy and responsibility. Okay, because the clock's still ticking, let me go to number three, okay? So number one, we risk too little. Number two, we rescue too quickly. Let me tell you the third mistake that I see happening unwittingly across America. We rave and reward too easily. Have you noticed that we live in a day of hyperbole? Don't you think maybe we use the word awesome just a little bit too much probably? Everything's awesome. And I start wondering, well, is anything awesome? that it, we, we start missing then what really is awesome or what we just, you know, we tell our kids they're awesome for putting the fork in the dishwasher. Now, I'm not trying to be silly. I'm just saying... In our family, we, if our daughter and son put it fork, we said, thank you. We all put the fork in the dishwasher here. Thank you very much. That way, when they really do something excellent and awesome, we can tr- generally say, that was amazing. And it really was amazing. We found out in our middle school focus groups, kids stop believing their parents. They love them, but they go, I don't really believe anything they say because it's all hyperbole. That scares me. You want your children by middle school to say, I really don't buy what she's saying. Mom says I'm awesome. Nobody else says I'm awesome. I don't think she's right. I think everybody else is right. So let's talk about this raving rewarding. I know why we did it. In fact, fact, this whole child obsession thing started happening back in the 1980s. You know this, don't you? A guy by the name of John Walsh in 1981 lost his son. You might remember this story. John and his wife had their son abducted in Florida. It was a horrific story. And when they finally found him, his body was found on the banks of a river and it was just atrocious. Well, John Walsh went on a campaign. He actually started a nonprofit organization and from his work, they actually started the uh, Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Washington, D.C. And then pictures of children on milk cartons started showing up. These children had been abducted. Uh, America's Most Wanted TV show came from his work. Okay, these people that are abducting children. Uh, All kinds of things happened. And I think it was well-intentioned. What he didn't know he was doing was placing fear all through the country. And now out of our fear, we're protecting. And out of our fear that who knows how much longer I'll have them. I've got to say, you're awesome. You're amazing. This is amazing. This is awesome. This is amazing. And I'm thinking it's backfiring. In fact, let me illustrate my point. Carol Dweck is an incredible researcher. She's a psychologist at Stanford University. She did most of her research at Columbia University, and I want you to hear what she did. It's very, very telling. In fact, she wrote a groundbreaking book called Growth Growth Mindset. Here's what what she wrote. She discovered while she was at Columbia that 85% of parents in America believe it's important to tell your child you're smart as they leave for school every day. And the reason we do that is we think that's going to give them a little you know, little confidence when they take a, a quiz or a test or an exam. So we're down, you're smart, you're smart, you're smart. Carol Dweck didn't think that was awful, but she was noticing during the day that that comment might be backfiring in the midst of the, of the child's daily routines. And so here's what she did. She decided to do an experiment. She took two groups of fifth grade children, divided them up into two groups, Both groups were given a fifth grade level test, one that was appropriate for their age, and after the test was over, the first group was told, you must be smart. The second group was told, you must have really tried hard. Do you see the difference? One was for smarts, one was for effort. Huge difference. A second round of tests were given, and they told the kids, now this is a lot harder. You don't have to take it if you don't want to. They went to the first group that they told were smart, Almost none of the kids in the first group wanted to take the test. The ones that had just been told they were smart didn't want to take the test. It's uh, by the way, it's just like it's almost like you just told me I'm smart, so I'm going to stop there. I'm just going to pull back. You know, I'm just I'll stop with a win. Stop with a win. I'm going to go with the curtain. You know, the three hundred dollars or whatever. So now listen, the kids that had been affirmed for effort, almost all of them wanted to take the test because that's dupl- that's re- you can repeat that. You can repeat effort. And even though most of the kids didn't do really well, because it was a really hard test they gave them, they said, as we roamed around the class for a couple of hours, we heard these kids whispering under their breath, I love this test. This is my favorite test. Because it was hard. When a third round of tests were given to both groups, this one back down to fifth grade level, the kids in the first group that had been affirmed for smarts did 30% worse. And they could not explain it. How could these kids do worse and you know what they discovered? See if this makes sense. As they interact with the children and then they started finding out what, they were, what was going through their mind, here's what they learned. The kids said, well, if I'm so smart, I shouldn't have to try so hard. That makes sense. You tell them I'm beautiful, I'm wondering why all the boys aren't asking me out. You tell me I'm smart, I don't know why I don't make straight A's. The, she said, we've got to be real. We've got to be real with our, our praise. Praise, encourage, definitely encourage. I love encouraging my children, but you know what? My encouragement, I try to make it very accurate in fact i stopped i stopped affirming variables that are out of my kids control and started affirming variables that are in the control even though i love my daughter and i think she's beautiful i said less you're beautiful and i said more bethany you know what i love about your heart you're so empathetic with your friends i love that bethany i love your integrity you're so honest i love that that's so attractive you see that's something you can keep around by the way don't looks fade eventually and all of us look what's happening to me okay I'm just saying, if you affirm variables that are in the control, they keep doing it, keep doing it. What gets rewarded gets repeated. What gets rewarded gets repeated. What gets rewarded gets repeated. So here's what Carol Dweck teaches us in her, in her book. When we praise variables that are out of, control, out of their control, we foster a fixed mindset. I'm just not good at math. I'm just not good at math. I'm just not good at math. When we affirm variables that are in their control, we foster a growth mindset. The kid might say, I'm not good at math yet. Carol Dweck told me over the phone recently, my favorite word in the English language is yet. I'm not good at math yet. Don't you love that? Now, that kid may never love math. They may never turn into Albert Einstein. But don't we want to, she says, the brain is like a muscle. It keeps growing. If you let it, if you grow it, if you don't pigeonhole yourself, I'm just ugly, I just can't play baseball, I just, and instead say, affirm variables that are in their control. You hear me? Okay. Okay. So let's keep going. Um, I, love what, uh, I love what Dan Pink said. He's become a dear friend. He said, when kids are conditioned to expect rewards, their motivation begins to depend on the reward, not the inward satisfaction of achieving. So let's talk about a child's brain for just a second, and then we'll move on. Um, Dr. Robert Cloninger has done brain research on the prefrontal cortex. Remember that part that's up front which monitors the reward center of the brain. He says the brain has to learn that frustrating spells can be worked through. The reward center learns to say, don't give up, don't stop trying. A person who grows up getting too frequent rewards will not cultivate persistence because they'll quit when the rewards disappear. Does this make sense? Now, I don't suspect anybody in the room is doing an atrocious job at this. I'm just saying, let's be way more intentional going forward. As your kids grow up, as your grandkids grow up, let's not reward too quickly. Let's not rave over things that shouldn't be raved over. Let's not rescue. Let's let them take risks along the way. Now, I want to do a slide that I did not do this morning in this particular um, auditorium. But I want to do it very rapidly, and then I want to let you talk at where you're sitting with the people next to you. I call this our scene today. And I'm about to give you two columns. This may be something you want to write down or take a picture of or whatever because it sparks great conversation. We have done this slide. I've done this slide with a half a dozen pro teams, basketball, football, baseball. We work with the New York Giants and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the San Francisco Giants and the Houston Rockets. And they're all going through this slide because we're talking about this. This is, this is interesting. What I'm about to give you is two columns On the left-hand column, I'm gonna give you five words that spell the word seen. And you're immediately gonna go, yep, that's our world today. That's our 21st century world. Our world is full of these characteristics, okay? But then off to the left, I'm gonna give you the unintended consequences of that scenario. What we didn't see coming along the way as an unintended consequence, okay? So faster seat belts, here we go. The letter S, our world today is full of speed. Would you agree with that? We want everything faster and faster. We want high speed internet access, and nothing less. Okay? We don't, call, we don't call it gram; we call it Instagram. Even the name has to sound fast to us, huh? Okay? Would you not agree? We tend to be a generation that's pacing in front of the microwave oven. It's ridiculous, is it not? This muffin's taking 60 seconds. What's wrong with this thing? You know? It's true. I'm less patient today than I was 20 years ago. Now, think about it. If I'm a kid growing up in this world today, if that's all I've ever known, I can easily assume that slow is bad. I don't like slow. Can't even navigate slow. Folks can ask you a rhetorical question. Wouldn't you agree some really good things happen slowly? Good marriages happen slowly. Over time, not overnight. Good talent is developed slowly. Somehow, our world doesn't condition us to do this, to believe this. Here's another one, the letter C. Our world today is full of convenience. And don't we all of the modern-day conveniences we enjoy. I sure do. I wouldn't want to be without them. But if I'm a kid growing up in a world of conveniences, everything is a quick click, like I said before. I might draw the conclusion, hard is bad. Did you all know that the number one phrase that K-12 educators say they hear from kids today? This is too hard. They tell their teacher that. This is too hard. They're weighing in, you know? Interesting. The letter E, our world today is full of entertainment. And by the way, now it's in our hands with us everywhere we go. Am I right about this? Would you admit with me? If you've got five minutes to wait in line, aren't you pulling that smartphone checking out March Madness, email, whatever? You know, we want to find one well, a little stimuli because we don't want to be bored, and that's my point. If I'm a kid growing up in this kind of a world, it's so easy to conclude that boring is bad. Now, I would admit to you, ladies and gentlemen, I didn't like boring when I was 16 years old. But do you know what we know now that we didn't know when I was 16? neuroscientists tell us today our brains actually need boredom did you know that they say it's in times when your day has some margin in it some space and some quiet that you actually develop empathy and creativity that's when the brain shows up that it's, that it's that it's building those those attributes in fact think about the opposite if you're living a day of noise and clutter noise and clutter noise and clutter you got the earbuds in the whole day you're not thinking about anybody else you're trying to survive the day and far too often I think we got kids that are so talented and capable but they're just surviving the day and into themselves and the selfie that I just took. The letter N. Certainly not everywhere but definitely middle class America. What, it's what I talked about before. Our world today is full of nurture. We decided we would keep these kids safe and that's a good goal but we became safety obsessed and nurture, 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 nurture and that's great but can I tell you as we do focus group with kids across the country, do you know the unwitting message, the unwitting message we're sending to kids? Here it is. Risk is bad. Don't take a risk. We need them to take some risks. Smart ones, but risks. I don't think we're going to be able to be the people we need to be for God or the nation we can be unless we get back to saying, let's take a risk on this one. This is worth it. Not play it safe. One more. The last letter E I'm sound like your grandpa now. Pardon me. Our world today is full of entitlement. This should be a part of the program. I should. You, you, I shouldn't. Have, this should be. This should be part of the deal. And if I grew up in a world of, and by the way, we're all. This is not just the kids. We all feel entitled to air-conditioned churches, nice carpet, padded pews. I want to fill out a comment card in that restaurant if I wasn't served well. Come on. Are we not? We, feel, we all feel more entitled. But if you're a kid growing up in this, you know what you're gonna think. Labor is bad. Shouldn't have to work for this. And all I'm saying is, what if we could build a population of great kids that were countercultural, that actually believed slow is okay, hard is good, boring is good? I'm just saying. Now, may I say one obvious thing before I turn you loose to talk to your neighbor for a second? Would you look at that right-hand column, the one that reads slow, hard, boring, risk, and labor? It dawned on me when I first scribbled this out Aren't those the very elements that grow me into a good adult? When things are kind of slow and I have to work at it and it's, it's a little bit of a struggle, but I got, I did it. I'm simply saying our marvelous world of 21st century technology, which I love, is unwittingly stripping away the very elements that would naturally build life skills in me. So we have to be more intentional. That's my message tonight. We have to be more intentional than ever before at building those skills, doing the strength and conditioning to build the patience muscle, the grit muscle, you know what I'm talking about, that don't naturally get built in a world of computers, which we love, but they can't build certain skills. we got to go after them ourselves, face-to-face, and do it. Now, I probably sound like your great-grandpa right now. I don't know if I do, but I want you to take about two minutes. I want you just to turn to somebody next to you. Do you see what I see? What are your observations as you observe kids and people in general? I'll call you back in a couple of minutes, and we'll move forward. Go for it. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I knew they were having a hard time. Okay, thanks, yeah, I'll do this. Okay, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you to wrap up your conversation, please. Um, I would love to hear from maybe two or three of you real quick. I'm going to try to stop at the very end for maybe five minutes and just field questions if you'd like to ask any questions. Um, I don't claim to be a guru, but I'll be glad to try to answer. But let me hear from you. What, uh, what were some of the observations you, that came up in your, in your conversation? Anything that maybe would be encouraging for the rest of the group? Yeah, please. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I wish you all could hear this. It's marvelous. It's really marvelous entertainment. <clears throat> Do we have a mic? Is there a, there is a mic, isn't it? Do you mind, can we, Chingy, um, would you be my mic man? Do you mind just sharing that so everybody can hear? I loved the it is our responsibility as grandparents to pick up when our children, grandchildren leave things at home. I mean, they can depend on grandparents. They may not depend on their mom and daddy. <laughs> but, but you are there yes, with sir. the cape on to fly over always and save the day. Always been yes. always will be. Yes, yes. Now, are we ruining them? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the children love grandparents like that, don't they? Absolutely. By the way, one of our team members, JT, they just had two kids. And they take their kids over to their grandparents. The parents go, go, no rules here. There's no rules. Ice cream for breakfast. Awesome. Let's do it. And they're going, I'm having to undo their time with grandparents when they're over there. Okay. Um, Yes. One right there. Go for it. Do you mind if we get a mic to you? Okay. So I have a son-in-law that's a state trooper. Okay. He said, my issue is safety. But that's what he sees. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. You know. So you're saying we well, see safety, but tell me what you mean by that. Well, for so him, it's difficult because he doesn't want to see the kids get closer to the road. He, of, you know, oh, he yes, of course. The things, yeah, right. You follow. And, and his so job is to make where, sure that we're staying right, in balance. Where, yeah. how, does, how do we help him to release some of that? Yeah. Because that's what he sees all the time. Yeah. Let me, let me volley back a thought. Maybe this will make sense. So when I look at the larger picture here, um, I think you all would agree, by, a, by the time you reach adolescence, male or female, there's certain things you want to do that just test your wings, just test, test it out. But this could be really stupid, or it could be really wise, right? So I think if we don't give them wise, real life stuff to do, and by the way, pardon me, like working a job. that's I was working a job from age, I'm not bragging, I was working a job from age 12, my dad said, so if you throw newspapers on new driveways, you'll make some money every Friday. Okay, I'm going to do that. So I'm on my stupid bike at 5 a.m., riding, you know, throwing newspaper. But I love the paycheck. By 16, I'm flipping hamburgers. You know, you guys remember these days, don't you? So all I'm saying is we're taking that away often, not all the time, but often. And so they're naturally going to do stupid things if we don't give them real life. work. Let me give a great example. I studied adolescence 100 years ago. It was so different. In fact, did you know the word adolescence is only 100 years old? Before that, it was your child or you're a young man. You're a girl or you're a young woman. There was no in-between. And now there's this in-between where we're not quite sure what they are. Am I right, parents? Okay. So get this. 100 years ago, four-year-olds were doing age-appropriate chores around the house. By seven, you're working the farm. By 11, you're leading the work on the farm. 14-year-olds were driving cars. 17-year-olds were leading armies in World War I. 19-year-olds were getting married and having children. Now, I'm not saying we need to go back and do that. I'm just saying it's in there to be so much more than people that get lost on Instagram. We've just expected so little of them. So safety is important, no doubt. I think the answer is give them something meaningful to do, not stupid to do. Of course you're going to try something stupid. The stakes are really low, whatever. I'll, in fact, if I goof up, mom will bail me out. I'm saying let's give them something meaningful to do. That's one reason I love Temple Baptist. You're sending them out on mission trips. I tell you what, you go on a mission trip? You go to L.A.? Wow, that's real stuff here. I'm trying to share Christ and serve, and this is not easy. So I think this is good. I'm, this is my opinion, but I got a mic. I think we should do hard things. Do hard things. Adults, we need to do hard things. We need to model for our kids. I'm willing to make a, get out of my comfort zone and do something hard for Jesus. So when my kids were five years old, we're going to Croatia. Remember when they were going through the Bosnia, Croatia, Serbian war over there? We were taking stuff to the refugees. My wife said, Bethany's only five. I said, no, she's five. That's awesome. She should do this. So she's out sharing Christ with kids in Croatia. I loved it. Never skinned her knee. Never skinned her knee. I'm being silly with you now, but um, maybe I'm on the edge. I'm just saying I believe these kids are so worth this kind of investment Where we do this and we say, the reason we're doing it, we so believe in you. You've got what it takes. Several times, when my son turned 12, 13, 14, several times I was saying to Jonathan, Jonathan, I can tell you have what it takes to be a man. I could tell he just lit up. Seriously, Dad? And and I wasn't just joking. Uh, I I think you have it in you to be a man. In fact, I'll tell you a quick story. When when he was 12 years old, when both of my kids turned 12 years old, we did a daddy-daughter, daddy-son trip, wherever they wanted to go. Jonathan wanted to go to Minneapolis, Minnesota. (laughs) Not Tokyo, not Paris, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Because the Mall of America's up there, Can't Snoopy, the roller coaster inside the mall, that sounded great to an eighth grader. So we get up there, the first three days, we're having a blast. We're riding roller coasters, having pillow fights in the hotel, we're having a ball. But the fourth day, Monday of our four day weekend, was gonna be a meaningful day. So I guess my son was, yeah, he was 12 at the time. So on Monday, we get in the rental car that we've got And we drive out to one of the 10,000 lakes up there in Minneapolis area. I park the car right next to a lake in a parking lot. And I said, Jonathan, I want to do something different now. I want to do something a little strange. He said, tell me something I don't know. He literally (laughs) said, I said, shut up. I said, Jonathan, um, I want to trade places with you. What do you mean? I'm going to get out of this car and try and get into the passenger side. And I want you to climb behind the wheel of this car. I want you to drive this car. First thing he said was, Dad, that is illegal. That is illegal. That is illegal. He's a, he's a rule keeper. So um, I said, Jonathan, we're not going to drive out in the road. We're just going to stay in the parking lot and we're alone here. I want you just to drive this big machine. I think you can do it. First, next thing he said, Dad, Mom will not like this. That's what he said. That's what he said. I said, Jonathan, Mom does not need to know. Come on. Well, it took me 15 minutes to talk him into it. But he finally, this little eighth grade, this little 12-year-old kid, got behind the wheel of the car and I explained the steering wheel and the gear shift and the accelerator and the brake and all the stuff and it took about 15 minutes but finally he turns it on and he backs the car out well he's a boy within five minutes he's he's doing everything he's seen me do you know (laughs) backing the car up parallel parking diagonal parking racing to the parking lot he drives about 20 minutes until I finally said okay stop the car stop the car we get back in our other seats our right seats he's now the passenger I'm the driver and I said Jonathan I know this is going to feel cheesy, but talk to me for a second. How did you feel when you first got behind the wheel of that car? He goes, Dad, I'll be honest with you. I panicked. I didn't think I could do it. I said, "Would you just show me? I guess I showed you I could do it. I said, exactly. And Jonathan, that's exactly the feeling you're going to have becoming a man. You're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. By the way, ladies, that is the truth. We don't know what we're doing. But anyway, I said, you're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing. But you know what? There's a God-given thing going on inside of you. You drove this two-ton machine. You can do this. Now, all I'm saying is, in your life, not just cars, in your life, you need to be a driver, not a passenger. You need to own this thing. You not, need to not blame somebody else when you don't get to where you want to go. You're a driver, not a passenger. This is how your life. And that opened up a conversation about how his body would be changing in the next several years. His view of girls would be changing over the next several years. His view of his parents would be changing over the next few years. And then I said, Jonathan, what else did you know getting behind this wheel? He had to think for a minute, but he got it right. He goes, Well, I knew you were right there. I said, Exactly. And Jonathan, listen to me. In your life, your heavenly father, right there, you're never alone. It was a great conversation. And afterwards, we, I, drove the car. Uh, about five minutes away, there was an old graveyard. It was about five minutes away. One of those old eight, 19th century graveyards with the epitaphs and, the, you know, everybody had a little line about them, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, I said, Jonathan, this is going to feel really weird, but I'd like to walk through this graveyard. You and I just walk around and read the tombstones for about 10 or 15 minutes in silence. No talking. He goes, Dad, this is weird. I said, I know it. Just, just do it. So for about 15 minutes, we just read gravestones. It's, it was weird. It was daytime, so it wasn't that weird, but it was weird. After we got done, we talked about what we'd seen. We saw some people that lived a long time and some people that didn't live long at all. We saw some people that had very nice things written about them and some people, not so much. And then we began to talk about ours. What would be the sentence that would be written about us? Is it just, I'm really good at video games? Was there something better? I had the most amazing talk I mean that. I mean, when I say awesome, I barely mean awesome now. I had the most amazing talk with a 12-year-old boy who started talking about what he wanted his life to mean. But my point is simply this. I've been nudging. They're not amazing. I've been nudging my kids ever since about 12. This is your time. Step up. This is your time. Step up. Both of them worked all the way through high school. Both of them. And I'm just saying, it's not because I didn't have any money to give them. I did. The, the point isn't, do you have money? The point is, There's something that happens inside of human beings when we do it for ourselves. And that's what I long for with this generation. They're too good for us to take that away. Okay. Um, Time for one more? Let's do one more. Any any other? Yes, I promise not to make this long of commentary for every one of your your questions here. Thanks, Shingy. (laughs) We have two wonderful grandsons. I had a grandfather that I loved dearly. And I now know what he meant when he said, if I believed in reincarnation, I'd want to come back as a grandson. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. I love that. That is so cool. Okay, so we're going to take the last chunk of time, and I want to talk about solutions, okay? So this is where I really want you to pay attention. But Shingy reminded me of something. I, um, I do a blog on these kinds of things three times a week. I write on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday and send it out first thing in the morning. If you'd like to get the blog, uh, we have a little sign up. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but um, it'll come right from my inbox to your inbox. But I do articles on leading the next generation well. So feel free if you want to just give us your email address and I'll uh, I'll sign you up. Um, Okay, so let's move forward now. Let's jump into um, our leadership must be a balancing act. I'm about to give you a handful of balancing acts that we as parents and grandparents and teachers need to do for the next generation, especially today. Okay? Now, I'm going to anchor every one of these um, balancing acts with one of our habitudes. Can I ask you a quick question? Um, are, is anybody in here familiar with habitudes? Can I see your hands if you are? Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe a dozen of you. Um, habitudes are simply images that form leadership habits and attitudes. Uh, It's simply a way to learn a principle, a biblical principle, through the power of a picture, okay? So we're going to look at five pictures, and then we'll be done, all right? So here we go. The first image I would give you, if you're going to be leading this next generation well, in your home or wherever you are, is, is one that I call chess and checkers. Chess and checkers. Talk to me for just a second. If I was to open up a box of checkers, and then I was to open up a box of chess... I would notice immediately it was this very same game board, right? So I could be tempted to think, oh, same game. You know that's not true. Okay, here's where you talk. What would be the first difference I would notice inside the two boxes? It's the pieces, isn't it? When I play the game of checkers, all my pieces move alike. They all look alike, they all move alike, same shape, same size. So I treat them all alike. In chess, however, if I have any hope of winning the game, I have to know what each piece can do. a knight goes up two and over one and a bishop goes sideways and a rook and a pawn and a king and a queen. Only in knowing the strength of each piece can I win. You know what I've come to believe? Mediocre leaders, mediocre parents play checkers with the kids. They treat them all alike and they get average performance. Great leaders have learned to play chess in the relationships of their life. Great parents have learned to play chess with their children. If you have more than one child, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Have you ever noticed? They're not alike. Born out of the same womb, eating the same green beans under the same roof, and they're so different. And if you try to treat them, al- now I know what your argument is, but if, if we don't treat them alike, isn't that unfair? Fair is not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is justice. And that means you know exactly how that heart responds to leadership and you do what that heart needs. For instance, I'll give you a good example. If we discipline, if we wanted to discipline our kids, you'll get this one right away. Discipline had to be different. If I sent Bethany to a room, she'd go, great, see you Thursday. That was not a punishment, right? Okay. Jonathan, oh my gosh, OMG, no people, you know. So all I'm saying is you learn how to lead those children uniquely. How many of you have more than one child? Can I just see your hands? Okay, many of you. Am I right about this? You're playing chess, not checkers. Now, I don't think I'm teaching you anything you don't know, so why don't we do this better? I think I know the answer. Talk to me real quick. Which of those two games, chess and checkers, takes longer to play? Which of those two games is harder to play? There's our problem. It's too hard. Just do what I tell you to do, you know? So listen to me. I'm gonna give you an application for this. It seems to me like there's three kinds of kids, whatever their age, five, 15, 25, three kind of kids. And I believe I need to lead them differently, communicate with them differently, discipline them differently based on the kind of kid they are. So the first kind, you'll recognize this one right away, is the driver child. Okay? You know what this means, don't you? They're very driven. They have a very strong will. In fact, on a good day, you say, that's a strong willed child. On a bad day, that's a stubborn child, right? Am am I true? Um, This child has a very large personality oftentimes. In fact, they're the kid that you go, I told you that seven times. Did you not hear me? And they go, "Uh uh-uh. And they're telling you the truth and you know why they're telling you the truth because they have 14 better ideas than the one you tried to communicate to them and they never heard it because they've got such a strong idea of what they want to do so with a driver child this is not unloving you have to be very clear and very direct you can't dance around the issues you can't beat around the bush you can't drop hints and hope to god they'll get it in fact you got a five-year-old get down on their level and say johnny look look at me look at me clean your room by noon on friday whose room who's going to do it what time you have to do that Anybody with a driver child, am I not right about this? Now, I'm not saying be rude. I'm saying be very clear and very direct, okay? Now, the second kind of child is the opposite of the driver child. This is the diplomat. They're the opposite. This is the peacemaker that loves harmony, everybody's getting along, everybody loves each other. They'll often acquiesce their wishes on the playground because, you know, whatever. My daughter Bethany, my daughter Bethany, diplomat. Her favorite word in middle school was whatever, 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 whatever. <laughs> if I wanted her to clean up a room, you know, I say, don't you want a clean room? Not really, whatever, you know. So with a diplomat, you need to seek cooperation because they love harmony. They want to cooperate. So their motivation will never be a clean room. They couldn't care less about a clean room. So what I would say, i say, Bethany, I know you don't care about a clean room. You know what really helped me? You know what really, what, Dad? It would so help me if your room was clean. Could you, could you give me a hand on that? Sure, but the motivation was different. The, what motivated her was helping others, not a clean room. So the motivation is just different than, 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 a, than a, a driver. The third kind of child is probably the most misdiagnosed of all. I'll call them the dreamer child. The dreamer child often has a very vivid imagination. Sometimes they're a dreamer, they truly are a dreamer. My son, Jonathan is a dreamer child. He had a wild imagination. In fact, at dinner time, it was always earth to Jonathan. Earth to Jonathan, come in, please, you know, because he's, he's off in la-la land somewhere. But the dreamer child, I think the best way to lead them is to provide options. So let's say you want them to clean up the room by noon on Friday. I The best way to do it for Jonathan was not just say, clean up your room. I'll never forget. I said, clean up your room. I went in 30 minutes later. Not only was the room not cleaned up, there were four new construction sites going up in the room. So what are you doing? Dad, I had an idea, you know? So, um... With, with the dreamer, you provide options. Here's four ways you can get to the goal. You get to choose the way. I do need you to get to goal. So the goal isn't diluted for, on any one of the three, but the way you motivate them is different. Everybody follow me on this? This really deserves an entire semester course on it. I'm giving you five minutes, but play chestnut checkers, play chestnut checkers, play chestnut checkers. And by the way, if one of your kids notices you're displaying different, they go, There's not fair. Bethany did that. She noticed I disciplined Jonathan different. I said, Bethany, remember Chess and Checkers? I told him this. I taught this to them. I said, remember Chess and Checkers? He's different. They, yeah, he is different. That's true. Okay. And, and she was okay. So anyway, let's go on. The next image I want to give you is the velvet-covered brick. I love this image. I want you just to look at this photograph. You see what's on the outside? That's nice, soft, plush, red velvet. Smooth and silky. Feels good when you rub it against your cheek. Inside, that's a brick. Hard, crusty, kind of cold. I believe great parents are velvet bricks. Tough and tender. Grace and truth. This does This not sound strangely biblical. Jesus was the most brilliant and is velvet brick. He meets a woman who's caught in adultery one day. And remember after the accusers put the rocks down and walked away he said where are your accusers and she said they've left and jesus said to her neither do i condemn you that's velvet what he said next was go and sin no more that's brick true so velvet brick here's your application on this one mom and dad they need you to be number one responsive that's the velvet part meaning i explain i display acceptance and support and belief i'm attentive to you i get you i've got your back I love you. Now, I believe all of you do that well. I'm just saying, would, that it, would to God that every kid in America had a responsive, caring adult in their life. We would probably solve half our problems if we had that going for us. But listen, I believe many of you in this room, maybe all of you in this room, you do the responsive part really well. That's why you're here tonight. You do the responsive part. They also need you at the same time to be demanding, which means to establish standards and hold kids accountable to those standards. It's almost like responsive is, I so believe in you. Demanding is, and because I believe in you, I'm not gonna dilute this on Tuesday because it seems hard. You have it in you to do this. Now I'm simplifying, I'm just saying, the best leaders are responsive and demanding, responsive and demanding, responsive and demanding. You do a study of leadership down through history. All the great leaders, including our Lord and Savior, responsive and demanding, responsive and demanding. My dad believes in me. He's calling it out of me. I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's hard, for sure. But he so believes I can do this. Mom believes in me. And because she does, she doesn't let me get by with mediocre. She knows I'm able to do more than mediocre. Does this make sense? I know I'm preaching. Many of you believe this way. This, I made this, made this simple picture haunt you wonderfully the rest of your life. Okay, Responsive and demanding. Response. And by the way, on any given day, they might need response, teachers in the room. Those kids might need responsiveness from you at 10 a.m. and demandingness from you at 1 p.m. on the same day. Am I right about this? It's like, oh my gosh, what's going on here? So just know you need to be going around with your antennas up saying, Holy Spirit, do they need responsiveness from me or demandingness from me right now? Okay, let's keep going. I love this one, rivers and floods. This is all about focus and clarity. Um, Real quick, the river and flood analogy is, is, is just helpful. Um, the difference between rivers and floods are both water, right? They're both about water. The big difference is floods are water going in every direction, kind of relentlessly going any random direction. F- rivers are flowing in a single direction because they have banks to them. And you can leverage a river really well. You can, you, you can hop in a boat and float down the Mississippi River, use it for transportation. You can light up an entire city with the flow of a, of a, of a river. This is all about the messaging we give them that needs to be very clear and very focused. You're going to have hundreds, maybe thousands of conversations with your children and grandchildren over the years that they're growing up. But I believe there's two mega messages that need to be directed at kids while they're growing up. And I believe they need both to be ready for adult life. Let me give them to you real quick. The childhood messages, let's just say the first 10 years of their life, they ought to be convinced of these messages. You are loved. You are unique. You have gifts. You are safe and you are valuable. Again, like I said before, would to God that every kid in America had some caring adult that said, you're loved, you're unique, you have gifts. I got you. But as they move into adolescence, Things are happening in their brain. Things are happening in their body. You know this. And there needs to be a new set of messages. Not against the first set. Keep doing the first set. But a new set needs to be communicated. And I've found far too few teens get this message in middle class and certainly affluent America. Life is difficult. You're not in control. You're not that important. You're going to die. And your life is not about you. Thank you very much. Now, I know this sounds... So- Let me tell you something. My mom and dad did this so beautifully. When I went off to college, I told you before, I knew I was loved and I knew it wasn't about me. And that made me ready for adult life. That made me ready for employment. I was ready for a boss that would say, this is what we got to do. All right, bring it on. Not, well, do you love me? Do you love me today? I I wasn't doing that. Folks, I'm telling you, employers are telling me all kinds of stuff that only tells me the parents did not get these these kids ready for a job. This is, I believe this needs to happen. Now, neither one of them undo the other, right? They don't. And I would say they're both mixed. We, we actually, I mixed them all in. As my kid was, my Jonathan was eight or nine. I said, man, Jonathan, life's hard. We just had a conversation recently. He's 26. And he goes, yeah, it's hard sometimes. And I said, you, you're right. But you know what? you got it. You can do this. He's married now. Their first year of marriage was, it was kind of a tough First, remember your first year of marriage? Okay, it was the first year of marriage. And I said, Jonathan, you can do that. You can love her. You can lead her, but you've got to do this. So all I'm saying is rivers and floods, two clear messages. Now, let me just say this. If you only give the first set and not the second set, by 21, you got a brat. If you only do the second one, not the first one, some kids in disadvantaged situations only have the second set, You got a poor kid that's looking for love in all the wrong places true so both are necessary both are necessary both are necessary okay two more i love this one this is one of our brand new habitudes i think it's out on the table in fact it's called surgeons and vampires this is all about giving feedback to your kids or your grandkids okay giving feedback i believe you'll tend to give feedback either motivated like a surgeon or a vampire now stay with me this is a very odd combo wouldn't you say First of all, let's look at where they're alike, okay? Would you agree you don't look forward to either the surgeon or the vampire? True? I'm not looking forward to either one of these guys, okay? Number two, they both draw blood. True? I mean, maybe that's why you don't look forward to them. I don't know. But ultimately, they lead to two very different outcomes. I believe that when we are giving feedback, we can either do it like a surgeon or vampire. I'm either going to be like a vampire where I kind of Surprise, my child. Bite them. I don't mean literally, but I mean, you know, we're just, oh my gosh, it's scary. Darkened room, nobody knows what's about to happen. The vampire sneaks up, bites the person, you know, it's awful, and the person never recovers. Surgeon's very different. Well-lit room, everybody knows what's coming, we're about to have a surgery. Uh, The surgeon's well-prepared for this surgery. A lot of preparation has gone into this. And by the way, he doesn't slice up the whole body. He just takes that one tumor out. We're not maiming the character of our children when they make a mistake. We're saying, let's just take this one tumor out. So here's my thought. My thought is that for us, we will offer feedback to our kids either from relief or belief. Now, let me tell you what I mean by this. Far too often, we offer feedback out of relief. I just want to relieve this frustration I've got, right? I want to get this, we even use the term, I want to get it off my chest. I need to vent. We use terms like that. That's a, that's a vampire. Blah, there it is, you know? And we may, everything we may be saying may be true. It just does no d- redemptive work. It's just, we're like a vampire. We hope they will recover one day. A surgeon does that, I believe. It still hurts, maybe. But the surgeon goes in and says, I'm going to, do, because I believe in you, I'm gonna do this. Let me tell you a great, great story of of a great example of this. One of my favorite principals in America, remember we just get to work with a lot of good people, is Jim Sporeleader. Jim just retired as principal of Lincoln High School in Walla Walla, Washington. I love saying Walla Walla, Washington. But he, his last assignment as a high school principal was an alternative high school. You all know what an alternative high school is? That's the last chance for these kids to get through high school and still get a degree, a, a diploma. So he's got at-risk kids that are at-risk academically or socially and they're all just, they're just not great students. They're not making straight A's. They're hoping they can graduate. So Jim said to his APs, his assistant principals, I want to handle all the discipline. They go, fine with me, go for it. So let me give you a scenario. Jim wrote his last year, I totally changed the way I did school discipline. He said if some kid in some class let's say a junior in high school dropped an f-bomb in class that was a no-no at Lincoln High School he'd get sent to the principal's office well that junior that male probably a male walking down the hall is just looking for a fight he is just ticked off at something he's walking down the hall when he gets to the office the principal's office he opens the door Jim doesn't say a word he just motions quietly for the young man to sit down so the kid finds a seat And Jim just stays behind his desk for about a minute just for emotions to kind of calm down. Nobody's saying anything until we're calmed down. Then Jim gets up from behind that big oak desk, walks around it so there's no barrier between him and that high school student, sits down in a chair no more than two feet away, leans in and says to this kid, wow, what just happened in there doesn't sound like you. Are you okay? Is there something going on? Maybe at home that I don't know about? Jim's sport leader said nine times out of ten, the kid would just burst. Dad just left us. Mom's on crack. My uncle was molesting my sister. You fill in the blank. But at that point, Jim had gotten past all the anger and everything else and got to the root issue. And he still offered an in-school suspension. An ISS was still given. He was a brick. But the velvet. I want to get to the issue here. The cool thing is, I don't have time to go through the whole story, but Jim said most of the time that high school boy would go back to his class and without the prompting of any adult apologize to the whole class. That was a leader that was a surgeon, not a vampire. He could have been a vampire. He could have said, I don't need this. Do you not know it's wrong to drop an F-bomb in class? He could have done that. That's the school policy. School policy wasn't necessary. What was necessary was somebody that led this kid well.